Good morning. So happy anniversary to you. Happy ninth anniversary to you. Uh, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary about six months or so ago ourselves. So uh, I bring greetings to you from the Saints in uh, Washington, D.C. If you're ever traveling there and know someone that is, we'd love for you to come and join us. If you know where the National Cathedral is, that's sort of our side of town. Uh, we're grateful for you. We pray for you regularly. And uh, we're grateful for how you've lent us your pastor uh, for our men's retreats. He served us really well. And so let me just say this. If you're a visitor, first time here, and you've kind of wandered in, you're checking out a church, uh, I would like to commend this church to you, um, largely because I know this pastor. I know what he's like behind the scenes, and uh, I trust this brother uh, with my life. And so uh, he is a sinful, flawed man, uh, <laughs> more ways than uh, we could count, but he loves Jesus. <laughs> he loves Jesus. I trust him. I love you, brother. And uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so this is my gift to you on your ninth anniversary, is just to open up God's Word and preach it to you. Um, I'm going to read the text in just a minute, but um, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. In your pew Bibles, that's page 567. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2. And when you open that up, I want you to notice, uh, slide down there, verse 5. I'm gonna be, we're going to take a look at verses 1 to 5. I want you to look at that very first word in verse 5. It's a single letter. It's a single letter. O. O. Behind that single letter, that single word, I think we learn uh, something about what is missing from most of our lives. O. We might say wow when we see fireworks on July the 4th. We might use culturally appropriate words, cool, great, awesome, from time to time. But when's the last time you heard something so weighty, so impactful, that left you just to say, oh, oh. Not only that, when's the last time you heard that and it reoriented your life? See, we live, we live in an interesting day and time, don't we? Here in America, we have everything that we need and most everything that we want. We lack for nothing, and yet we still want more. We are among the most wealthy, most extravagant, most connected, most resourced people, quite literally, in the history of the world. And yet, as a result, on the whole, our society has increasingly become thin, hollowed out. We lack depth. We lack wonder. Uh, As one observer has noticed, uh, that as civilization advances, its sense of wonder declines. Where lightning and thunder used to be the voice of God, we now know it nothing more to be than just the uh, cold air and hot air coming together. That's it. All very explainable. Technological advances have rendered sunsets and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as nothing more than bit players, as what is interesting in the world. And so, friends, I have, in light of this, a very big goal for us. My goal is to get us, by the grace of God, to say, Oh, when we consider what is being taught in this passage. Oh, Israel, as it says there. Oh, Jubilee Community Church, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord together. So let me set this passage up before I read it. From verse 1, you can see there that Isaiah is a prophet that is speaking to God's people who had been living in Jerusalem. That's the city, capital city. And Judah, that's the region around that city. 
They've been living there for many years. Isaiah is prophesying some 700 years before the coming of Christ. Before the coming of Christ. The main message of the book of Isaiah can be encapsulated in three words. Judgment, hope, and glory. Judgment, hope, and glory. God is judging His people as a result of their continuous unrepentant sin. And yet in the midst of that, He's bringing hope to them. Bringing hope to them. And He'll eventually bring glory to His people. We see back in chapter 1 of verse 2 that uh, Israel is like children that were reared to love God, but they've since rebelled against Him. Chapter 1, verse 4, this sinful nation was laden with iniquity. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 1, 7, you can see that as a result, God has then judged their city, their region, because it currently lies desolate for having over, been overcome by foreigners. In Isaiah 1, 18, though, God though promises hope that through, though their sins which cause this judgment are red like crimson, they will be made white as snow. And then you see in chapter 1, verse 26, that glory, the glory of a new city, wherein they, are, they will be cleansed. They might come to live in this city of righteousness, a faithful city. And that then leads us to Isaiah 2. So stand, if you would, as I read God's Word. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 5. An honoring of God's Word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above, above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the living, he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Oh, house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me pray briefly. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. May we hear your word and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Big idea of the sermon this morning. Big idea. All the nations find their peace in the supremacy of Christ. That's the big idea. You get lost somewhere in the midst of this, just come back to that idea. Uh, all the nations will find their peace in the supremacy of Christ. Three points. Here's the first. Christ establishes the site of the greatness of God among the nations. Christ establishes the site of the greatness of God among the nations. So first off, look there. Verse 2. Notice the words latter days there. Latter there means final or last days, the end days. So Isaiah is saying that the prophecy he is giving us will be realized in the final or the last days. That is, the last days of the story of redemption. Those final days of redemption. We can think about previous days or previous ages, right? The days of creation, the days of Noah, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can think about the old covenant, the days, the age of the old covenant, where God's people were in the place of Israel. And Isaiah is saying that this other age, another age is coming, another kind of days is coming. 
It's the last days, the final days, the final period until the end comes. You then ask the question, well, okay, Isaiah, what's going to happen in those days? Well, we see there in verse 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of mountains. Notice it says the mountain. It's a particular mountain. It's not just any mountain. It's the mountain. You then say, well, which mountain is it? Well, it's the mountain of the house of the Lord. You might then ask, well, what's going on with this mountain stuff? Why a mountain? Well, throughout the Bible, mountains are consistently represented as places where God meets with man. You see that all through Scripture. They are sort of like places where heaven and earth come together. God goes down, man goes up. The two meet together in between. And when you look at the story line of the Bible, almost all the important events you can think about happen on mountains. So we can think of Ezekiel 28 that says that Eden was on a mountain. We think about Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the law. The temple, which is in Jerusalem, was built on the Temple Mount. Uh, And of course we know Jesus' great kingdom edict, it was a sermon on the what? Mount, right? Jesus both appoints and commissions his disciples on a mountain. And of course, how can we forget the Mount of Transfiguration? Where the glory of Christ is revealed in the face of Moses and Elijah, along with Peter, James, and John. And so mountains figure prominently as these symbols of God dwelling with man. They're kind of like temples where God comes to dwell with man. And so for Isaiah to reference that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest mountain, he is referencing a cataclysmic shift in the pattern of God's redemption that is coming. That's what he's saying. And here's, let me be more specific about that. The the relationship, this is what he's saying, this is what Isaiah is saying, the special relationship God had in speaking and living with Israel was going away. And a new day was coming. A day in which the mountain of God would no longer be limited to Israel. He was going to make it rise up so high that all of the nations could see him and flow to him. Jerusalem would no longer be the privileged son who could live in the house of the Lord. He was going to raise up his home so high as to receive sons and daughters of all the nations. In these latter days, things we see are going to be different. Under the old covenant, God dwelt in the temple which was in Jerusalem in the region of Judah. and Therefore, by God's sovereign grace, he chose to limit the kind of height of that mountain to that region. In other words, God had primarily revealed himself to his people, Israel, which lived there in the Middle East. That was the kind of height of the mountain of God. Gentiles or non-Jews, they were welcomed into that region, which was a kind of preview of coming attractions. Uh, primarily the mountain of God, the city of God, was limited to that region, Jerusalem and Judah. It was only seen, as it were, by God's people, Israel. But now the Lord is telling us that the mountain or the temple of the house of the Lord would be lifted up as the highest of mountain. It shall go above the hills. Now to be clear, don't miss this, guys. It's not as though the Lord wasn't the highest and best of all things before. He was. He is. It's just that now the Lord is going to raise up the mountain so that it can be seen and populated no longer by just ethnic Israel. Now it's going to be so high that it's going to be seen, going to be populated by the nations. 
Let me try and illustrate this point that Isaiah is making for us. When you see the Eiffel Tower, what is it you think of? You think of France, right? The Paris French. You think of what it means to be French in some ways, shape, or form. Well, what if we symbolically lifted up the Eiffel Tower and said that it was now the symbol of the world? You would sort of understand the point. What if we did the same thing with the Statue of Liberty? If we were to raise it up and say, now, now this is going to be so high, this is going to be the symbol of the Lord, world. In other words, what we are doing when we do that is switching these ethnic symbols and turning them into global symbols for all people. If we lifted up the Eiffel Tower, we are lifting up Frenchness to the world. If we lifted up the Statue of Liberty, we would be lifting up Americanness to the world. And so by the prophet Isaiah saying that the mountain is going to be lifted up as the highest mountain, he is saying now Israel's God, the only God, the one true and living God, is being lifted up to the nations. That's what the Lord is promising to do in the final days. No longer will the manifest glory of the Lord be limited to the ethnic people of Judah. In the final days, it's going to be the highest. It's going to be global worship because God is a global God. All the other hills and mountains, which is to say, all the other false gods and false places of worship, they will be diminished as the glory of the Lord is lifted up above them as He exposes Himself as the highest and best of all things. As He makes Himself known to the Gentiles. And slide down there in verse 2. Did you notice? Look at the verb there. Did you notice that verb there? It says that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be what? Established. See that? And all the nations will flow to it. In other words, it's not going anywhere. This mountain, as it is lifted up, it's going to be set. It's going to be secure. It's going to be established. Those of us that are familiar with the storyline of the Bible, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Because when God created the world, this is what He wanted in the first place. This global worship that would be fixed. We can think back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? We can think back to... Uh, uh, God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth will be established. God's always wanted this. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus shows up, he atones for sin on the cross, he resurrected, he resurrected, he speaks to his disciples, he says something not new, but incredibly old. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? Of all nations baptizing them, as you saw Emily today, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ invites all the nations into this prophecy. Christ has sealed with his blood or established the mountain as a fixed reality for all the nations to stream up into. He established it with his blood, and with the resurrection, he makes a way for the Jews first, but then the Gentiles, all nations that believe, they're all invited up to the mountain. We can remember back to Simeon. Do you remember Simeon, the words of Simeon when he sees the baby Jesus? That he looks at Jesus and says in Luke 2.32 that he would be a light to the Gentiles. Quoting Isaiah. This is a major theme of the New Testament. We could take the Apostle Paul. After rehearsing the preeminence of Christ in uh, uh, Colossians 1, 15-20, Paul says in Colossians 1, 25-27, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the nations, the Gentiles, which are the riches of His glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We see the exact same thing happening at the end of Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. So in other words, Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come and raise up the worship of the nations. He then establishes it, and then we see the New Testament authors looking back going, He's done it! Now all the nations can come and flow up to him. The light of the glory of God was hidden kind of in a kind of valley of a small village of Jerusalem and Judah. And all the rest of us non-Jews, we lived in darkness. We did not know God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent the light of the world to make a way for us to live forever in the kingdom of light, even though we all deserve darkness. And so let me just pause right here and offer two brief applications for us. The first is to those of you that may not have repented on the very thing that you saw Emily testify to. If that's you, if you've not trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you're not worshiping Him alone for salvation, or if you believe that Christ is only one way to the top of the mountain with God, then friend, allow me to extend a candle to you. Allow me to extend the light of God's grace to you. From this passage, we can see so clearly that the God of the Bible is the only one that is, worship, is worthy of worship, eternal praise and glory. He's the only one. He is the highest. He's the best. He is here the highest of the mountains. He is above all other hills. That is, he's above all other gods. And so, friend, if you despise him, if you reject him, if you, or if you consider his worth as the same of other mountains, other gods, then, friend, you choose to live in darkness. Choose to live in darkness. The invitation, though, is right there in verse 5. Come. Walk in the light of the Lord. Come to Him. He's revealing Himself to you now, friend. Right now. Revealing you to the way to the city of God up on the mountain where everlasting peace and joy are found. Come to Him. Know Him. Take the light of Christ. Turn from your darkness. Don't entrust yourself to anything else other than Jesus. I love what Emily said a moment ago. I need Jesus. And so do you, friend. Trust Him for salvation. Turn from following all other gods. But secondly to you, Jubilee Community Church, are you walking in the light of the Lord's grace by your worshiping the Lord as the highest and best of all things? Are you? Or are you worshiping at other hills and mountains? Your life together depends on how you, the covenant members of this church, answer those questions. These last days are referred to as the present evil age, as Paul writes. And one of the best games of the evil one is to get confessing Christians to worship at lesser mountains so as to distract them and others from the reality of God's infinite worth. No job, please hear me, beloved. No job, no income, no relationship, no house, no car, no trip, no experience, nothing is of greater worth than Christ. Nothing. Serve then at your jobs. Provide for your families. Enjoy the many good gifts that God gives the world. But never forget, there is no higher mountain than Him. There is no higher mountain. And so do everything in your power, church family, to walk in the light of the Lord by your making it clear to yourselves, to each other, and to this community that God has no rivals. 
Make that clear to yourself. Make that clear to each other. Make that clear to this community. He's done everything God has to make that clear to the nations. He's done everything to do that. And so, in word and in deed, walk in the light of the Lord by living and loving as though Christ really was the highest and the best of all. Make that clear. Treasure, that is, the supremacy of Christ. Christ has established the sight of the greatness of God among the nations, but we also see, secondly, Christ teaches the greatness of God to the nations. Christ teaches the greatness of God to the nations. So as the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross, He not only lifts up the mountain of the house of the Lord, establishing the sight of His greatness to all of the nations, but also in order to orient that worship, Christ also teaches the nations how to walk in the infinite worth of God. He teaches them. He establishes, Jesus does, and He teaches the nations of the infinite worth of God. Look at verse 3 again. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the mountain of the house of the Lord lifted up so all the nations can flow up to it. And as this happens, we learn many peoples, meaning the nations, they will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And then we need to answer, ask the question, why? Why do they want to go up there? Well, so that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, may teach us his ways. That's what it says. And why do they want to learn his ways, we might ask? Well, so that they, so that we, the nations, may walk in his paths. So that the nations may learn to walk in a way that magnifies the infinite worth of God. And so I wonder if you can think of anybody like that. Can you think of anybody that maybe came to the earth and taught as though he was God himself? Can you think of anybody like that? Right? This is referencing clearly the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we learn time and again that people are astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one that had authority, not as the scribes. We can think of the times of the prophets of old would say, truly, truly, uh, the Lord says. And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and says, truly, truly, I say to you. We can recall this happening time and again. And here, Isaiah is making the ministry of Christ. That's right. Isaiah making the ministry of Christ more clear to us. That not only will Christ establish or fix the worship of the one true God among the nations, verse 3, that the nations will get an up-close personal discipleship training session from God himself in Jesus Christ. In Mark 1.38, Jesus even says, this is why I've come to preach. But now you may ask, okay, well, Nathan, didn't he resurrect from the dead and ascend to heaven? So how is it Jesus teaches us now? You said that the nations are coming. That's us, mostly, probably all of us in this room. We're going up to the mountain. We're going to be taught. But how's Jesus doing that now? How's Jesus teaching the nations now? Well, this directs us into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that would come would be referred to as what? The Spirit of Christ, right? The Spirit of Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples that eventually he's going to go away, but he is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And listen to how Jesus described the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 14, 26. 
the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that, Jesus says, what I have said to you. And of course, after Jesus' resurrection, He tells His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit He promised comes. And once it does, what does He say in Acts 1-8? You guys know this verse. That he, they will be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Look back down in Isaiah 2, verse 3. Where does the law go from? From Jerusalem. And so there in Acts 1-8, through the ministry of the Spirit, right, the Word goes out of Jerusalem. And Isaiah's prophecy rings true. And now it's still happening as the ministry of the Spirit illuminates the glories of Christ in the teaching of His Word. And so in these final days, not only does Jesus raise up the sight of the house of the Lord so as to give sight to the nations, but also God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus, to secure salvation, and God the Son teaches the nations Himself through the Spirit. And so in other words, friends, Jesus, insofar as the Word is being taught faithfully, Jesus teaches us now. Now. He's orienting our worship on the mountain now. I know it doesn't look like a mountain in here, but it's a mountain, right? And so far as we're knowing God, loving God, treasuring God, in faithfulness to His Word. So as the Word of God is properly taught, people respond not to Nathan, not to John, to Jesus. To Jesus. As He teaches them His Word. It's what happened to Emily. It's what happens to so many of us. It's what's happening for the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. We were all by nature flowing down the rivers of this world, living and loving the darkness until Christ broke through that darkness and His Word then through the power of the Spirit recreated us and caused us to be born again that we might go against the flowing tide that goes down and instead we might go up the mountain. You guys know, did you all hear about that new waterfall they discovered in the jungles of Brazil? Yeah, pretty crazy. They, they saw that the waters are flowing up this mountain. Of course that's not true, right? There's no way that's true. That can't be true. And so when we read here that this, these, the, the nations are flowing up the mountain, that shows this supernaturally God, through the power of His Word, by His Spirit, is bringing people up on top of the mountain. It's His work. It's not ours. Praise the Lord. And this is happening not only here in America, this is happening in China, this is happening in Bulgaria, this is happening in Vietnam, it's happening in all these places, it's happening in Indonesia, it's happening with Diodene in Cameroon, it's happening in Turkey, it's happening in Bangladesh, it's happening in Sweden, it's happening in uh, Haiti, and it's happening in Pakistan. All over the earth. And your church has been sending people out to spread that good news, that people would go up the top of that mountain and be taught by Jesus. And so what Isaiah is prophesying here some 700 years in advance is that in the last days the nations will get something better than the Jews of old. They will not have to be relying upon the prophets to come and speak the word of God to them. God was going to come down himself and teach us. And that's why he gave us Jesus. That's why he gives us the spirit. And guys, that's why he gave us this. And so may John, may your pastors teach you the Bible so that you would know God and be oriented on the mountain to know God and treasure Him above all else. And that's a good application for us here at Jubilee Community Church. If Christ has established the 
greatness of the glory of God as the highest of all mountains, making a way for the nations to stream up, and he has. And if Christ is teaching the nations by the power of the Spirit, through the teaching of his word, then what's your application? Not just John's application. What's your application, Christian? Teach people the word. Open up your Bibles and teach people the word. Show them Jesus. Open up the Bible and teach it to them. Isaiah says, look down there in verse 3. Many peoples shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, house of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways. And so, brothers and sisters, place many people in the flowing rivers of God's word, that by the Spirit of Christ he may teach them his ways. Christ has made a way for the nations to flow up to his house. And it says right there in verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it. So guys, you have a promise. You have a promise that when you open up the Bible and point people to Jesus, somebody's getting up on top of that mountain. You and I did. Emily did. So open up the Bible and teach. It will be your mouth, but it will be Jesus' words, beloved. Insofar as you teach them the word of Christ, he that wills will work in you to accomplish the intentions of his will in others. You can't make water flow up a mountain, but he can as you teach him the word and call him to it. Listen, you know the word. Those of you that have been trained, discipled, if you know the gospel, you've been there. You've been in those waters. Take them there. Show them the rivers of grace that you have been taught by Jesus yourself. You know the way. You know the truth. You know the life. So show them the rivers of grace that flow to Jesus by teaching them. Might you be rejected? Might you lose your job for this? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. At the cost to himself, Christ has made a way for the nations to stream up to him. It cost him his life. Why should it not cost us any less? Trust him. Speak the word of Christ. You don't have to trust yourself. I do this with my people all the time. It's such a heady city. They've got more degrees than Fahrenheit, my church does, right? And, and so I'm constantly telling them that like the stupidest guy in the room, listen, you don't have to trust yourself. You don't have to all the, have all the answers. You just have to trust Jesus to save them. You don't trust yourself. Trust him. Open up the word. Speak it to them. They may have, they may have life. Get on top of that mountain and enjoy him forever. That leads me lastly, finally, to the peace of God. Christ has established the sight of the greatness of God amongst the nations. Christ teaches the nations to walk in the infinite worth of God. And finally, thirdly, Christ brings the peace of the greatness of God to the nations. Peace. Look at verse 4 again. He, that is the Lord, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. I love this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is the fruit of what Christ has done. Since through the cross, he's established the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the highest and the only God to the nations. And since he taught and is teaching those nations his ways, in these latter days, Christ then is bringing a people from every nation up to the mountain of the house of the Lord to have peace. That's what he's doing. 
bringing peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace with a world that is groaning under the weight of its own sin. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has and will settle the disputes of the nations, causing them to put down swords and spears that take life, and then bending them into things that will give life. That's what Jesus does. As the preeminent king, he uses his preeminent power to take those things that promote pain and turn them into vessels of peace. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross, isn't it? He took a cross, a sword, and he turned it into a plowshare, vessel of peace. So good. He took a spear with death. That is death. He took a, what death is spear. He took that spear and he turned it into a pruning hook in the resurrection from the grave. Christ takes the broken things of the world and he makes them whole again. He makes all things new. He will do that to the whole world. He will bring about one people among all the nations for his glory and his people's good. Folks, you need to know the United Nations They have more knowledge, they have more power, they have more potential for peace than any governing body the world has ever known. And yet the world still spins out of control. They have no ability to bring worldwide peace more so than an ant does. Doesn't mean they shouldn't try. The Center for Disease Control has more ability than ever to curb the spread of disease. And yet we are no less sick than we have been. We have more access to information and education than we have ever had, and yet we still cannot figure out how a peregrine falcon can fly 200 miles an hour. We have engineered driverless cars. We've created computers so small they can fit in our pockets with more sophistication than the brightest minds of a century ago could ever have imagined. We have learned how to fine-tune a body with diet and exercise so as to produce the greatest athletes in the history of the world. But no one can figure out how to stop divorce. No one has figured out how to stop racism or abortion. No one has figured out how to stop abuse or mass shootings or wars that lead to the death of millions of sons and daughters. Folks, I've followed Jesus for some 20 years and I still don't love him as I ought to. Though politicians and technological giants promise us a new world, the world never really seems to change. And yet it has. And it will. That's what we see promised in this passage. So listen, let me encourage you today, beloved. When you go to lunch today, and you found someone that has found Jesus, or Jesus has found them, ask them their testimony. And listen to how God has made peace in them. When you go talk and and learn about what God's doing at Shalom Community Church, ask them what God's doing over there, and you will learn about how God is bringing peace to that community. Call up Deodonai. Ask him what God is doing in Cameroon. And he will show you how God is making peace through his people, through the proclamation of the word. Talk to these people. Call up Jahil. It was just installed down in uh, Louisiana. Ask him how God is bringing peace to the world. Because he's doing it. The New York Times, CNN, none of them are going to report on this. And yet it's happening. It's happening in the jungles of Brazil. It's happening in the deserts of Africa. It's happening in the plains of Nineveh, northern Iraq. I know because I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. People's lives changed for the glory of God. Peace, wholeness brought in by His grace and for His glory. And beloved, listen, 
soon enough, Christ will return. This peace that we see here in Isaiah 2, verse 4, it'll get complete. It'll get done. Once and for all. Soon enough, Christ will return. Revelation 21 says that heaven will come down to earth. And Jesus will have the very thing that he prayed for. God's name being hallowed and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. He will have that. That day is coming. The church will be one great assembly. There will, in that assembly will be a people from all nations, just as Isaiah said, and we will worship on the mountain of the house of the Lord together, and we will say to the Lamb, worthy are you to be receiving of all glory, power, riches, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. We will be up on that mountain, and it will be complete peace. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, as Christ settles all disputes, just like it says, and we will live in peace with God and one another forever and ever and ever. That day, beloved, is coming. Christ has secured it all. That's why we sing about it. And so that brings us to that final word, verse 5. In light of these things, in light of the fact that Christ has come to establish the mountain of the house of the Lord up above all the nations, in light of the fact that He is teaching them through the power of His Spirit, through the proclamation of the Word, and they are flowing up there, being taught by Jesus Himself. In light of the fact that there is peace that, is, that has come and is coming, it's all secured. All the promises of Christ are yes in Him. All, all the promises are there in Jesus. It has happened, and it will happen. So therefore, in light of that, what have we to say but this? Oh. Oh, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in His ways. Let us be willing to be persecuted, struck down, but we will not be destroyed. We have hope because Christ has come and He will come again. And that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that John prayed for when he said that you would be here, Lord willing, 90 years from now. That's the same hope that we preach in Washington, D.C., when the world is spinning out of control in that city, there's a little tiny group of folks about this size that is speaking glorious peace because of Jesus. And they're finding it. And so, friend, I encourage you, if you've not yet found it again, trust Him. Enjoy Him forever. In Jubilee Community Church, that's my final call to you. Know that Christ has established it. Be taught. Spread the word. And enjoy His peace until He returns. Let's pray to him now. Give thanks. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the highest and best of all things. Thank you that the gospel got to us. Thank you that Jesus has taught us. And God, may we teach others that more churches would be planted, that people would know finally your peace. And God, we do pray for peace. We pray for peace now in families and in broken relationships and in marriages. Uh, Lord, we pray for peace all over the world. And we know that ultimately that peace will come. It has been secured. It has been established by your blood, Jesus. And so come. Please come. Come soon. But until then, may we find ourselves at work in the field spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope that's found in Him. We pray this for the glory of Christ and the good of His people.